You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod. Pina, Michael, we need to welcome the Open Floor Globe to the week of the NBA's restart. It's finally here. We've been covering this thing for more than four months, the buildup from the bubble proposals to the negotiations, to the meetings, to the trip down here, to the medical clearances, to the protests, to the coronavirus, all of it. And Thursday night, we are all set to finally open games. Zion, back in the bubble. LeBron <laughs> already has scrimmage uh, you know, reps under his belt. Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, same thing. We are setting up for a pretty awesome opening night on Thursday. Now, to kind of get us excited about it, Michael, I thought I would ask you, what have you made of the scrimmages here since Wednesday? The last time we talked, I believe it was right before I was heading down to my first day of scrimmages where I was lucky enough to see Giannis and the Bucks, followed by LeBron uh, and the Lakers. Um, the next couple days, I got a chance to see the Clippers, a, a few other teams here and there. It's all happening. They've unveiled the court. They've unveiled all the crazy new signage around the court. Um, they've shown me where I get to sit, which is, you know, basically on the court, Michael. I mean, basically eight feet away from the uh, the action. It's going to be an incredible run for a basketball fan here the next three months. But I'm curious, what stood out to you more than anything else from these scrimmages? What do the listeners have to look forward to when play resumes on Thursday night? I mean, right off the top, I just want to say that I think over the past few months, I've been probably the biggest negative Nancy of all time, just in discussing. I'm glad you said it, because <laughs> I finally snapped on the last episode. You might have noticed when I called you a wet blanket, yes, and yes, uh, yes. I I felt a little bad about that over the weekend, honestly, but then I thought, you know what? It was earned. Michael is a wet blanket. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I was. I think some of my rationale was justified, but... Uh, you know, I was a kid in a candy store watching uh, the first scrimmages, the first day of scrimmages. Just I love having basketball in my life, especially when it's being played during the day. I can just sit on my couch with the remote on my lap and just flip around from League Pass to NBA TV to ESPN, wherever the game is, like I'm there. And I got to be honest, Ben, I don't know how it feels when you're in the gym and there's no fans. And I'm sure you can notice a significant difference from from like you know sitting in a normal NBA environment in terms of just the the noises and how the atmosphere plays out but on television I honestly didn't really feel like anything was that much different and part of me is relieved by that and part of me is super disappointed because I wanted to be able to hear players more vocally. I, like, I wanted to hear the trash talk. I wanted to hear plays being called out. I wanted to hear communication on the defensive end just because I'm a huge nerd. But we don't really, we haven't really gotten that. And maybe that'll change when games actually start to matter. And I know that they're going to try to, you know, tinker a little bit with the broadcast format. But so far, like, I didn't notice too much different. Like, I, I, am I crazy or how, how have you kind of absorbed that? 
Well, the first game in person was definitely weird. Um, I just remember like Paul George hitting this awesome buzzer beater at the halftime. And normally at a Clippers <laughs> game, you know, Balmer's chest bumping someone and the two mascots are running around like lunatics and T-shirt cannons and like sometimes even hot dogs are, you know, that's all being just flung into the stands and you've got dance teams and stunt teams to celebrate a shot like that. And in the gym, when he hits that buzzer beater at the at the end of the first half, one woman clapped three times and then realized she was the only one clapping. And so she stopped clapping. And it was just like the weirdest, strangest thing. Or guys would go to the free throw line and, you know, you would typically expect it to be like, you know, a bunch of streamers and, you know, everybody waving, trying to distract him in the background. And there's just no sound whatsoever. Very eerie. I mean, it would almost be difficult to concentrate as a free throw shooter in that situation just because it's so different. So there were moments like that that were um, significantly different. Now, on the point about the, the communications and the conversation, um, that really stood out from the in-person experience because we could hear LeBron calling every single defensive coverage during the Lakers game, kind of going above and beyond anytime someone subbed in or out and he was on the court. He was calling out all the individual matchups. It felt a little bit like he was leaning into it for our benefit, you know, from the media standpoint, just to maybe, (laughs) you know, make us write about it. There was also a hilarious moment where uh, Frank Vogel just kind of passive aggressively told LeBron, like, hey, LeBron, don't forget Luka Doncic is the best in the league at selling contact. You know, you've got to be careful there. And he was obviously saying it loud enough so that the referees would hear him, you know, call Luka a flopper and and maybe adjust their calls (laughs) going forward. So you had some of the moments like that. And you also had a few of the benches just going crazy, like trying their absolute best to generate their own, you know, crowd feel. I mean, the Lakers stood out for sure. The Mavericks did it a little bit as well. We've seen a few other teams try to, you know, just create that, chemistry type environment where like we're, we're supporting and cheering for every single shot so that at least you get the positive feedback um it does feel like there was sort of a boardroom meeting maybe with like a sports psychologist who was like guys you're gonna have to be your own crowd down there and then like some of these teams really took it to heart and some of the other teams maybe were just sleeping through that presentation and not really taking notes um so you've got a few differences there <laughs> Uh, what about on the, the court itself in terms of, I, I think they have enhanced audio mics, so you're able to get the sneaker squeaks. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that they've got those video boards, which to me were a smart solution, so you don't see the empty seats. I think one of my single biggest priorities coming into this from a visual standpoint was not having that background uh, you know, backdrop. If you have the empty seats, it's just death. It just gets into your head that nobody else is watching it, and it makes it feel like less important. Having those video boards, even if they're kind of goofy, and you know they have the the piped in fake fans, you know, from uh, some of these technology that they're trying to do with fans around the globe watching in real time, or you know, during the Lakers game, they had the Lakers girls jumping up and down like kind of distracting fashion, you know. Um, uh, some of that stuff was a little bit corny, but it's better than having empty seats, you know. Yeah, I think one of the things I was most weary about was having it feel like I was watching a Pistons game, you know, like before they changed the color right. of the seats when it would just be just a blanket of red and it was like no one is here. And it's just like it it really dulls down the significance of what you're watching if no one is paying money to actually partake in person. Right. So, and you just want to change the channel when that happens, right? Exactly. And I do. I don't watch the Pistons a lot. So, um, but... But yeah, no, I really I liked the those the giant LED screen. I thought that that was like brilliant. 
And to your point before, real quick to circle back on the Paul George shot, like I think it was Terrence Ross who hit like a half court buzzer beater and there was just like no sound, like no cheers, no nothing. And I thought that that was pretty funny. So um, I think just in terms of like the on-court play real quick, I was expecting a little bit, I I was expecting the play to be a little bit more sloppy and I know we're going to go into specific players pretty soon, but I don't know, like, it seems like some guys who are just, like, the superstars of the league picked up where they left off, and some teams that were extremely effective before the season was suspended are just still really good. <laughs> and I I think one of the talking points that at least I bought into was that all that time off was going to throw off chemistry, and we did see a little bit of that, particularly on the defensive end with missed rotations and stuff like that. But offensively, these guys just, like, are pros pros, and some of it just, like, didn't skip a beat, which kind of, I mean, it's, I shouldn't be that surprised maybe, but I was. Yeah, I have two thoughts. First of all, I mean, do we get to take credit for tanking expectations for four straight months? Because I think that was our leading talking point on like 30 straight podcasts about how ugly the basketball was going to be. And so now it comes out and it's, you know, more than pleasantly surprising. It feels pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, Mission accomplished. My second take, though, it's more of a conspiracy theory for my buddy, uh, you know, tinfoil hat Pina. (laughs) Is it possible that these guys didn't skip a beat because they didn't actually skip a beat? Have these teams just been playing together throughout the entire shutdown and we just didn't know it? Oh, man. I love this uh, conspiracy you're throwing at me right now. And, like, who is stopping the Lakers from just all hanging out at LeBron's mansion, compound, wherever, and just having practices? Like, I could see that happening for sure. Well, I mean, no one's paying attention to it. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, like if I was going to reconstruct this, I mean, I definitely would need Anthony Davis. I would try to bring in Danny Green. I might Mm want to have like five or six of the guys who I'm in the rotations with most regularly if I was LeBron, just living at the mansion, like you're mentioning, or maybe pool house or, you know, across the street within a little Lakers bubble. And then I would have, you know, five people who I would be testing daily for coronavirus as the Washington Generals, you know, the the team that we get to beat (laughs) up on. And I would just play for two hours every single day and then work out for two hours every single day. It doesn't seem that complicated, does it? It's a, a much more contained environment, fewer people. You've got nothing else going on. Could that explain how we got here? It's just a conspiracy theory. You know, I'm, I'm getting into the tinfoil hat stuff too, but it did seem a little bit strange how well-oiled a lot of these teams were, not just the Lakers, by the way. I thought the Bucks came out and, uh, you know, drop-kicked a couple teams and looked really, really impressive. They look um, great. Right. Yeah, you're scared already as a Celtics fan. I, am. I know. So um, <laughs> it, it was the number one takeaway. The basketball is a little bit better than we expected. Just to wrap up on the court, I think the way I want to put it is, you know, they're calling the building the main arena here um, at, uh, you know, the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex. They're calling it the arena. So it's very creatively named, right? Hmm. And it will host the finals. It will host the conference finals. It's a nice facility. I just think a more accurate name for it would be the set. It feels like a television set. Like you walk into it, you have all those bright lighting. It feels like you're behind the stage at like Warner Brothers or you're like getting a little tour of, you know, whatever your favorite sitcom is. The court has super cool uh, illumination. Like, you know, the the players almost look like video game characters. I mean, first of all, they're so close. But second of all, the lighting just kind of, you know, strikes people in that way. They feel larger than life. 
the media seating is usually either courtside, like floor level, or a little bit raised, um, but still close. So like I was mentioning earlier, you can kind of hear and, and see everything, these details you wouldn't normally. Um, and there was exchanges with referees that we were picking up on, you know, guys just kind of being like, hey, you know, you've been off for four months. It's showing you're missing all these calls left and right, you know, um, that, that kind of stuff. And to me, uh, we said for a long time, this is a made-for-television event. And once you finally saw, okay, where are they playing? That's exactly what it felt like. This is a TV set. This is the NBA's version of a TV set. And they they constructed a reality where fans can actually be non-essential. And if you go back to March, remember it was LeBron who said, what's the game without fans? You know, he couldn't even imagine or wrap his mind around playing without a crowd. And I was thinking like, when is the last time that LeBron played a competitive game in front of fewer than 200 people because that's the number of people who were in the gym for the Lakers' first scrimmage. Um, If you count up all the the behind-the-scenes tech people and the arena staffers and everything else, it's like, what do you think, like fifth grade, sixth grade, uh, in terms of when the last time he was, you know, he played there? And I do think that to offset that weirdness, the the set helps, you know, having this sort of like larger-than-life, made-for-TV vibe reminds the players kind of in the back of their mind that hey there's millions of people still watching you they just don't happen to be in this building so I think it kind of works psychologically now at the same time I was trying to ask all these coaches and players like hey do the things that they're doing for home court advantage with like the video boards and the sound effects and the you know the the home team gets to pick the music which is very funny by the way because like the Bucks soundtrack is from like 25 years ago the Lakers soundtrack is all like modern you know like pop rap hits um, so you, you get a little, you know, jarring uh, sensation going from game to game. But I was asking them, like, does any of this stuff matter? And they all just kind of looked at me with with blank looks, like, what video boards? Like, what are you talking about? We're just playing basketball out here. Like, <laughs> so they're at least saying that the uh, the obvious stuff is not that big of a deal in terms of influencing the gameplay. But I do think the overall stage that they've created, or the set, as I'm calling it, um, is going to wind up being a big win for the players. I hope the set catches on. That's a really good name by you. And it, it reminds me of Tiger Woods that when you said LeBron James hasn't played so long in front of so few people, like Tiger Woods was competing the other week and there was obviously no fans following him. And so it must like to mentally go from, hey, this is a meaningless practice round to, oh, my score actually matters, but there's no one watching me. I feel like it could be pretty bizarre and difficult to adjust to for some of these guys who have been in the public eye for so long. Um, really interesting, though, that you mentioned that players look like they're in a video game, because I don't know if you saw this clip, Ben, but there was uh, in, during the Thunder Celtics game, uh, Chris Paul was inbounding the ball from the right corner and he threw this like beautiful he just like thread the needle along the baseline to I forget who on the opposite corner for a three and the camera angle was like positioned right behind him so it was unusually shot and it looked beautiful but he looked also just like it was straight out of from a video game and uh that was really interesting and some of the different camera angles there was another one i saw where james harden you could see his pump fake as he was driving to the basket and he oh, caught someone yeah, in the yeah, air yeah. oh my goodness it's just like i i need more of those i don't know how we can get them um what their availability is but i love the new camera angles too 
Yeah, so, I mean, it's a case of, like, art imitating life or life imitating art, you know, <laughs> the, the back and forth between the real life and the video games. The camera angles thing is a great point I should have mentioned. There, as far as I could tell, there was basically one human being camera operator in the building who was kind of sitting uh, on a rolling chair near center court, and he would kind of give you that typical, uh, you know, bring the ball up the court angle f- uh, from the center spot. Um, other than that, it's pretty much all robotic cameras that I could see. And in the arena, they actually have basically a dolly where a camera is on this uh, this moving thing, and it will just sort of like race down the length of the court with the action to sort of like stay even with the basketball. And it goes really fast. And I wasn't paying attention, Michael, when I first walked in. They were testing it, and I almost had that that dolly camera knock my iPhone out of my hand because I was standing in its path. So <laughs> everybody, keep your head on a swivel uh, just in case the the dolly cam comes for you. But they're definitely experimenting, and some of those angles. Like kind of from the baseline, around the basket, under the basket, on top of the basket. We just don't ever get those in a normal environment. And they are super cool. The one of Harden was like, I'm sure the guy who came up with that camera saw that Harden highlight and was like, this is what I was telling you guys about. It's awesome. (laughs) Uh, So it's cool, man. I I like what they're doing. Before we um, hop into some more in-game analysis, I don't want to bury the lead too much more, Michael, because we had a major test of the bubble protocol over the weekend and it almost feels like it's a Mad Libs NBA um, situation where sixth man of the year Lou Williams has to leave the bubble to attend a funeral has a detour to Magic City a very well-known strip club in Atlanta for allegedly the purposes of picking up dinner his favorite food in the world according to him the Louisville rapper Jack Harlow, who has a soft spot in my heart because he has rapped about John Stockton, imagine that, probably the first guy ever, um, winds up posting a photo of himself with Lou Williams from the club. Uh, Harlow is drinking in the photo. Um, he tries to later deny that it was a current photo and said that it was a, a photo from months ago. Unfortunately, there was a smoking gun on Lou Williams's face because he was wearing one of the NBA masks they give out here in Orlando. (laughs) Um, So the story kind of crumbled. Lou Williams wound up admitting uh, to the NBA that, yes, in fact, he had gone there to to get some food. And the NBA really had no choice but to put him back into quarantine for a 10-day period. Now, he is back here in the bubble starting with that quarantine period, but it's looking like he will miss the first two games Uh, of the regular season restart, including opening night against the LA Lakers, which is obviously a a very high-profile television game. Now, Michael, we had some listeners point out that you constructed or you imagined almost this exact scenario on last week's podcast. I believe you said something along the lines of someone as competitive as LeBron could uh, find a way to, you know, trap or document one of his competitors um, <laughs> in some sort of a, a protocol violation, thereby leading them to be in a quarantine period and missing an important game against the Lakers. Here we have exactly that scenario. So I just want to pose this question to you. Is Jack Harlow a Lakers agent? Was he part of your, you know, mastermind conspiracy theory? Did LeBron and Clutch Sports basically... Uh, contract with Jack Harlow to bust Lou Will at Magic City to give the Lakers an edge on opening night. What do you think? (laughs) I think this was just more a case of self-sabotage than anything else. And uh, real quick, like, 
you know, I was home over the weekend visiting my parents in Boston, and I had this conversation with my mom about how I've never felt, I never feel more old than when there's a rapper or a musician who I've never heard of who is popular with it's like a song on like the top 100 billboard charts or whatever. And so when you sent me the outline with Jack Harlow Uh-oh. as the person who posted the photo, I had no idea what you were talking about. And so I had to Google it. And then that's just like it, it doubled down on just how old all of this makes me feel. So I just wanted to admit that and get that out of the way really quick. Um, but no, I, I think that I, I, you know, I wish that I predicted more accurately what this what what actually happened, which is like, I wish I said on the podcast that Lou Williams would go to Magic City and order wings and it would be this whole fiasco. But instead, I was a, a few degrees separated from reality, but I'll still well, take credit for the prediction. Michael, if you had said that, though, wouldn't have people said, oh, it's a little bit too crazy. Or they would have said like, <laughs> oh, that's too obvious. Like, what are you saying? I mean, it's kind of straight to script. I wonder, is this almost like the worst possible PR headline for the NBA, right? I mean, you want to have this image of like dedication to the bubble, everybody's staying safe, zero positive tests. And then a headline I think that got, you know, ran with by a lot of different outlets was, you know, player pops bubble with strip club jaunt. And, you know, that's not inaccurate, but it also doesn't quite fully, uh, you know, get the, the context of why he was outside the bubble. It's not like he went solely to go to the Magic City on Friday night and then pop back in. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, how bad of a PR hit is this from the NBA standpoint? And do you is there any way to call this a win because they were able to actually kind of prosecute him, I guess, if you want to use that word, or at least hold him accountable for the action? Yeah, it's, it's so weird that that is how this is framed. Like, it's basically a suspension, but it's also not it's like we have to do this because we're trying to keep everyone as safe as possible so it is a it's like in it's partly a punishment but it shouldn't be framed that way do you know what i mean it's really it's odd because this guy did break a rule and do something that he wasn't supposed to do but to quarantine is not necessarily a bad thing it's what you should do if you step outside the bubble and go to a strip club when you shouldn't so I think that the NBA right. was, yeah. I was going to say that the punishment part comes in because theoretically he will lose his game checks from those two games, and mm-hmm. it could wind up costing him something like $150,000, according to ESPN's Bobby Marks. Um, so, I mean, that from that standpoint, those are expensive. That's an expensive dinner. Like, you know, I understand Magic City <laughs> apparently has this amazing food. Everybody in Atlanta keeps tweeting about it. I don't think it's that amazing, $150,000. Um, so... I guess as somebody who is in the bubble, and I come at this from a biased perspective, like I was interviewing as part of a group, Lou Williams, on Wednesday, like two days before this all took place. The idea that he could have gone to Magic City, had there been no photo, come back in to the bubble, potentially be asymptomatic, go through a quick four-day quarantine period Mm -hmm. uh, as part of the accelerated return and then play opening night against the Lakers and then do post-game interviews with the media... Uh, you know, that same night and basically just hope that nobody tests positive throughout that entire process, whether it's him, whether it's his teammates, coaching staff, media members, or anybody else, like that is exactly how the worst case scenario unfolds, right? I mean, that's sort of like textbook, here's how the bubble bursts. So I just want to say, and and maybe no one else has ever said this before in the history of humanity, but thank God for Jack Harlow. Like he kind of (laughs) saved us all here. Like if he didn't have the... 
he didn't have the Twitter fingers, Michael, like we're all definitely at a higher risk, uh, you know, today and this week than we would have been previously. Now, what are the odds that during that time period, Lou Williams uh, contracts it? What are the odds he could test positive multiple times? I understand that, um, you know, this is a, there's a series of checkpoints that would need to all take place before this kind of thing could have breached the bubble. But the risk is definitely higher because of his activity. And to me, I, I thought, you know, sort of his decision-making on this one was really inexcusable. And the fact that he didn't want to really uh, apologize for it or, you know, basically just told everybody to, hey, man, relax, it's no big deal, and, and try to play it off that way, I thought that was a, a bad look for Lou Will. What about you? Yeah, I think trying to rationalize it by he was stopping off to get his favorite food as opposed to enjoying you know, what takes place at a gentleman's club as if that would make it any better was maybe not the way to go. It, it did make it more comical, I think, uh, for sure. But like the whole point of this is to be as cautious as possible. It's why the NBA is having these games take place in a bubble. It's why they spend $150 million to put this on and construct the set as you so eloquently described it earlier. And you just look at what happened, what is happening in baseball right now, where the Miami Marlins are having this outbreak among their team, and all it takes is one person to go outside the bubble. Now, Great obviously, point. baseball baseball doesn't have a bubble, but and and I guess that just shows that if someone steps out of the bubble, all it takes is one person to contract uh, COVID nineteen, bring it inside, and infect a teammate, and then all of a sudden, the Los Angeles Clippers, the whole team, the staff, like we don't know how many people could contract it, and it's just it's dangerous. So, yeah, it's it is a it's funny from a certain perspective, but it's really like not. It's serious, and like I wish he was taking this more seriously and didn't behave the way he did. Yeah, I hope the Clippers step in on this one and say, "Hey, man, look, um, there's a lot." Uh, at stake here, not only the health, but the reputation of the league, right? I mean, these are these are kinds of things that are being covered so carefully by so many different media outlets. And to have this kind of perception that you're just flipping about the rules or just because you're wearing a mask when you went to pick up the food, therefore no one should care, um, is not really in the spirit of what the NBA is trying to kind of get forward here. Uh, so I think that whether it's Doc Rivers, Clippers president, um, I think there does need to be a little bit of a meeting of the minds on this one. And when he comes out of uh, quarantine, hopefully he has a, a slightly different message. Um, you know, it's it's pretty wild to think about, you know, how quickly something like that could devolve. Remember back to how upset Donovan Mitchell was at Rudy Gobert when he sort of blamed Rudy Gobert for passing the virus to him. And mm-hmm. as we all know now, who knows who had it first? Rudy Gobert was just the one to show symptoms and test positive first, right? Imagine how upset teammates and opponents or media members, imagine how angry I would be personally, Michael, if <laughs> we didn't get to watch NBA games for the next three months because one guy wanted to go to a strip club for some food, right? No, I, I, mean, I, I, no, I would really look forward to your column uh, you know, advocating for the Clippers to trade Lou Williams to the Cleveland Cavaliers. That I would read that in two seconds. I mean, ultimately, I think the column would be like, kick the Clippers out of the restart. I think that would have to be it. Like, you're not holding the standard up. Get these guys out of here, right? Um, and I'm, I'm being slightly facetious. I don't really want to go to these dark hypotheticals, but like drastic action in that kind of a situation, if there was an outbreak, uh, you know, would need to be uh, would need to be taken. And like you said, it's not really a laughing matter. On a lighter note, Michael, can I ask you a personal question? Um, sure. Are, 
are you a strip club guy, man? Are you a are you a big strip club guy? Do you like to get out there and uh, flash some dollar bills or no? Because when I'm reading all these tweets over the weekend, everyone is like has these Magic City tweets, and I'm just thinking like, am I the one doofus who just has no interest ever in going to Magic City? You could probably fast forward 75 years in the future, I'm still not going to have a Magic City take. <laughs> um, am I just that guy, Michael, or am I? Are you uh, are you with me? I've never been to Magic City. I have been. Uh, this is going to get. I, I really hope this conversation doesn't get me in trouble. But I have. Don't worry. Been to, don't worry. No one's <laughs> listening. It's just you and yeah. me. And certainly it's your private, wife doesn't have access. Okay. Pri- private conversation. Um, yeah, I have been to strip clubs, of course. Uh, in my younger days, uh, I've been to them in Miami and Las Vegas and New Orleans. And I think when I was, you know, in my early twenties, initially they were kind of cool. Uh, And then real quick, they made me feel extremely depressed. You just look around at some of the people who are clearly regulars and just what you're experiencing and what you're taking part in is kind of like super seedy. So I'm, I, I mean, I, I have not been to one in at least 10 years and I don't really plan on going to one ever again (laughs) um but i mean ben have you ever been to a strip club or you just never been to magic city no i mean i'll I'll go ahead and say it i mean this is gonna this is gonna probably raise some eyebrows (laughs) i've never been to a strip club i have no desire ever to go to a strip club i've been to a few college parties where maybe there were there was certain entertainment like you said that's an awful long time ago no desire to go whatsoever. And certainly the idea of like, I need to pop down to Magic City for some food because I'm just dying here in the bubble was pretty much the single last thought on my mentality. So look, I understand NBA guys are living different lives than us for sure. And I'm not trying to judge anyone for how they have fun as long as it's, you know, legal and safe and consensual and everything else. All I'm saying is please put everybody's health and safety uh, before everything else. And Michael, if you ever did, start a strip club i imagine you would call it the wet blanket now michael let's uh move forward here (laughs) with a question uh just to wrap this part up Mm -hmm. adam silver has made this point multiple times players are safer inside the bubble than outside does he get to like hold up this lou williams story headline and say i told you guys i told you this is what i've been saying for the last month i mean is this sort of like exhibit a of the notion that uh, we should expect the NBA bubble to hold because most of the positive tests that guys are going to be potentially, you know, coming across in their day-to-day lives are through non-basketball activities, through the type of socializing available to players with, you know, near unlimited resources. The bubble is only as strong as its weakest link. And so theoretically, I guess you could say coming off the recent batch of testing of players where they said that no one tested positive. Sure. You could say that uh, just statistically being inside the bubble is a little bit safer than being outside it in Orange County where cases are still rising. But all it's going to take is one person bringing it in. And as we saw, like Lou Williams could have been that person. If Jack Carlo never posted the photo, we wouldn't have even known how it got in there. So... Uh, yeah, right now, I suppose you could say, um, that being inside the bubble is safer than being outside the bubble, but you will probably come to eat those words because I do think that somehow, some way it's going to get in and someone is going to test positive before this is all over. Very well said. I hope not. 
because so far, so good. Um, as far as we know, no positive tests in the bubble. I will say this as my final thought. A real sense of security had developed here prior to this Lou Williams uh, you know, fiasco, whatever you want to call it. I mean, every morning I'm waking up, getting my test, usually 9, 9.30. Uh, the whole thing takes about a minute from start to finish. It's a very quick and speedy process. No lines when I'm going in the morning. They've got uh, this new protocol where I have to connect my medical devices by Bluetooth to my phone to get instant readings. I mean, that whole thing takes about 30 seconds. You're in this nice groove where every single day you're getting the email saying negative, negative, negative. You're, you've got the routines down now when you're going to get testing and uh, you know provide them your vitals. Everything seems like it's going forward just fine. The games have started. Players are now more comfortable with the interview setups with the media members. Um, everybody seems like they're getting back to work just fine. And it almost leads you to this feeling of like bubble elitism, Michael. It's like, oh, come <laughs> on. If your sport doesn't have a bubble, you've got no shot. If you're not living in a bubble, you know, you're you know, at this crazy risk that, uh, you know, we don't have to even worry about. It, it really does kind of warp your mentality like that um, in part because, you know, this is a good life down here. Let's just be honest. It's Disney World. It's got good weather. There's enough things to do, and there's great basketball being played, right? Um, with t- To be confronted by this alternate reality where, like, somehow Lou Williams infects the, all the Clippers and all the Lakers and, like, you know, two other teams because he went to Magic City, it just kind of shattered that illusion that had developed and kind of, at least for me, set me back a little bit, like, not to day one, but maybe to, like, day four or five where I was still getting adjusted. Now, will that kind of build back up? You know, hopefully so. But I think it's just a reminder that everybody here needs to stay vigilant. And you're seeing the NBA even enforce stuff like, hey, if you miss a test or if you you don't you don't take care of your protocol stuff, you have to sit out a game and and uh, you you don't get to participate that day. You know, Chris Stapps Porzingis got dinged for that. I think a couple other people have as well. That is reassuring, uh, and I, I do think it it lets you know that somebody somewhere is checking all this stuff very diligently and making sure that people do follow the rules. All right, Michael, let's get back to the court. Um, And, uh, you know, I want to know your big takeaways about how some of the biggest names played in their first games. I'm going to start with an absolute heater from one of our longtime listeners, Brandon in L.A. He writes, once again, Luka Doncic is the star of stars (laughs) while sharing the floor with LeBron James. And he's referring to the opening night scrimmage uh, between the Lakers and the Mavs. Again, Luka outplayed LeBron. Doncic had more points, rebounds, and assists than the quote-unquote king. When will the world wake up and realize that Luka is the one who should be second in the race for NBA MVP and that Doncic is currently the better player? LeBron has never had a season like Luka, and this is just Luka's sophomore year in the league. Some say LeBron is still the best player in the NBA and the second greatest player of all time. Actually, LeBron is eighth all time, and here's this kid who's putting up better numbers than LeBron and hasn't even played 150 games in the NBA. So, Michael, Brandon's coming off the top rope. He's not messing around. He's in midseason form despite this only being the scrimmage uh, round of the NBA's restart. Thoughts on LeBron versus Luka, LeBron or Luka or Giannis or anybody else you saw in the first couple games? Who jumped out at you? And, uh, you know, where do you come down on this raging debate that Brandon is starting, trying to start? I really loved the ridiculousness of Brandon's email. Uh, every sentence just outdid the previous one. So <laughs> shout out to him. Um, I mean, yeah, like 
Luca, I, like, we should just start. Like, it was a, a scrimmage that has no meaning whatsoever on anything. So I, I don't know why we're trying to count stats and measure them up against other players and uh, try to find any meaning in any of this. Um, I do not think that Luca is better than LeBron James. I think, you know, I want to really quickly cite uh, a take that my dad had when I was watching the Lakers play the Orlando Magic. And he was just like, this guy, referring to LeBron, like, he understands that this is a scrimmage, and he's clearly playing probably 60% as hard as he could. Because, like, I think my dad said that after, like, some sloppy turnover or whatever. And it's like, yeah, LeBron, what does LeBron care? He doesn't want to get hurt. He's trying to win a championship. He's second in the MVP race because his team is incredible because he's on it. (laughs) Luka is a very, very, very good player who is prodigious in a lot of different ways. And uh, at the same time, like, you know, uh, Luka's Dallas Mavericks are probably going to be the seventh seed and not as good as LeBron's Lakers. And part of that is because LeBron is better. So just want to get that out of the way real quick. And I also would well, love to hear his le- se- who what seven players are, are better than LeBron all time. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, eight feels a little bit uh, cynical. <laughs> but um, look, there's something to what he's saying. I, first of all, on the Lucas side, he showed mm-hmm. up ready to play. Like LeBron was doing like 360 windmills during warm-up, bouncing around the court, like clearly had been just itching to get back and playing competitive basketball for that first scrimmage. So he only played like 15 minutes, but I actually thought he went in the first scrimmage. He actually went pretty hard. Um, He was trying, you know, dunking in transition, alley-oop lob throwing. I think he felt like he was trying to send a message. And then you look at his post-game commentary where he's going on for 10 or 15 minutes about Breonna Taylor and Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. It very much felt like, hi, my name is LeBron James. I'm reintroducing myself (laughs) to the entire world today. Like he was, he was trying to make a statement is my point. Um, And Luca was right there with him. Now I'm not so concerned. Okay. How many points, rebounds and assists do both of those guys have in a scrimmage? Um, But Luca was making some really nice plays, shooting the ball very confidently, loving the head to head matchup with LeBron, welcoming, um, you know, the defensive responsibilities sometime. Uh, It felt you know, as a basketball stand, it felt like, you know, a little bit of a, a torch type moment, you know, when you're seeing these guys go head to head and you just imagine, you know, Luca could be one of the faces of the league for the next 15 years. Um, you know, just anytime those guys are sharing space, it's it's nice to see. So I thought Luca acquitted himself uh, quite nicely. But to me, the biggest takeaway, and we hit on it a little bit earlier, how ready both the Lakers and the Bucks looked and then how individually focused LeBron and Giannis appeared. I mean, both those guys had nice opening nights. Uh, Giannis got into a little bit of foul trouble, but you know, just the idea that like doesn't really matter where you put them, whether it's Milwaukee, L.A., an empty gym in Orlando. Those guys are still like incredibly difficult to stop. They're very confident, composed players. They've got teams that accentuate their strengths, and their impact is just insane. And and watching you know Giannis dunk from the floor. And, you know, watching him just kind of stomp around and strut around like he does with the shoulders and just seeing how people kind of shirk from him a little bit, you know, no one really wants the physical battle with Giannis. And, you know, for LeBron, it's just how he orchestrates, right? You know, these over-the-top alley-oops, the the crazy just cross-court laser passes to wide-open shooters that people don't anticipate. You can feel the deflating aspect on the teams they're playing against as these guys are doing what they do uh, because you're closer and more, uh, you know, in a greater proximity to the action. Um, you know, by the end of the the first scrimmage with the Bucks, you just saw a lot of glazed looks. 
um, you know, on the Spurs face, like, oh God, you know, like, what are we supposed to do with this guy? And I wasn't totally anticipating that and certainly not anticipating that out of the gate. So, uh, you know, and those were some fun, just first impressions from, uh, from seeing those guys play. Has there been anyone else, Michael, aside from, you know, the, the, the stars of stars who we're talking about here, who, uh, who got you excited? Like, what about your Celtics? You watch the Celtics, right? I did watch the Celtics. Yes. Um, Celtics look good. I don't want to spend too much time on them, but uh, I did really appreciate uh, every single time Tatum touched the ball. Uh, I was on my couch just saying he's about to knock down a three, and then he probably wouldn't, and my dad would laugh at me. But uh, yeah, it was good to see those guys play. It was good to see Kemba Walker play in their second scrimmage and look really spry and attack the basket and finish through contract contact and that sort of thing. Um I think one player who's really fascinating to me, who we have not mentioned, is a former star, and uh, he goes by the name of Carmelo Anthony. Uh, skinny Mello, Mello Light, whatever you want to call him. He's lost some weight. He's got to play the three now because uh, Zach Collins is back and Yusuf Nurkic is back, and they're a little bit more thin and beefy in the front court than they were when he initially signed. But watching Carmelo, you know, he is felt looking, but like he was actually playing defense in these scrimmages. And like there was one possession I saw, I forget who Portland was playing. It was their first scrimmage, but he contested two shots on the same possession. And he was like going all out, busting his ass. Like I have not recalled ever or seeing Carmelo play defense like that in literally years. So uh, that was really impressive to see. I don't know what does Carmelo. Did you catch any of the Blazers games in person? I'm really interested to hear what Carmelo looks like when you see him up close. I didn't get a chance to see them yet, and that was going to be one of my other points, Michael. There's too much basketball here, man. 22 teams. <laughs> yeah. It's out of control. Like you know, it's hard to keep up with. You know how it is during a playoff series. It's hard to keep mm-hmm. up with two teams in one city when they're practicing, when they're shooting around, when they're post gaming, and all that. The idea that there's 22 teams all practicing on the same day here and there's like eight games in three different gyms. And I mean, it is enough to make your mind explode. And I already have kind of made the the mental, uh, I, I guess, admission or, um, you know, waving the white flag that there's going to be some teams that are here in Orlando that I never see play. Like there is a very good chance that like five <laughs> of these teams are going to be gone before I even get to see them play once. And that's a little bit sad, but, you know, ultimately that's just the facts. Melo does look very skinny. I don't know how to feel about that completely. Does any part of you just kind of wonder, like, I mean, why now, right? And I understand the, the <laughs> desire to extend the career, and it does feel like a little bit of a Vince Carter move, right, where it's like, okay, you've you've acknowledged, all right, you're in a different stage of your career. You're not the same guy. You've got to find ways to... Uh, to stay on the court and have an impact and all those kinds of things. And so this is just kind of like non-negotiable. You got to get into better shape and, and you have to be quicker um, and you have to be able to get up and, and down the court um, more easily. Uh, it does feel like, you know, if you compare this version to like what we saw in the latter days of New York or um, even OKC, I mean, you kind of wish maybe the, the switch flipped earlier. Is that just too jerky no. of a thing to say? No, I mean, you're right. I, I would say better late than never is like the half glass full take on that. But no, I, I completely agree with you. It would have been nice if Carmelo got into better shape earlier in his career. Um, and even when he was in Oklahoma City, just instead of shrugging off the 
when a reporter asks you a question about are you going to come off the bench and laughing at it, like accept where you are and be self-aware and know your role on the team and how you can best help. So it seems like he finally has grasped that. So yeah, better late than never is what I'll say about Carmelo. Do you think it's possible or am I getting ahead of myself if I were to say that Carmelo Anthony could be Portland's second leading scorer down there? Um, well, maybe, yeah. I mean, why are you, are you down on CJ? I mean, or no, yeah. I I mean, yeah, it's so disrespectful to CJ, but I just, I don't know. I'm, he's at the three. He's going to shoot basically every time he touches the ball. Uh, I could see it happening possibly. I don't know. I don't know how many minutes he's going to play in and what lineups, but, uh, I didn't want to, I feel like I'm throwing way too hot of a take at you right now. Yeah, I think I think the that third role is probably going to be his. I mean, ultimately, when these guys get back to their normal minutes, I do think that we're going to see a reversion to regular season norms. And I think that the the Blazers' two guards are so consistent in what they do that they're going to kind of still carry the day. But um, I also think just to triple back on our Nurkic conversation from last week, he looked really good out of the gate too. Mm-hmm. So Portland's got to be pretty excited. Um, you know, if they can wind up pushing into that eighth seed, it'll be interesting first round series. Um, but that's, uh, you know, still a long way away. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd, American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. I want to take a couple other quick questions here on, uh, you know, just the the game atmosphere and the setup down here, just to, to kind of knock these out, Michael. Hugo from Lisbon, Portugal asks, I just recently understood that the MLS is also at Disney. Is that, no, is that another bubble with even more athletes? And are any other sports coming there so that we could have some sort of Disney Olympic Games? Hugo, it's amazing how close all these facilities are that you can actually see the MLS soccer fields from one of the gyms that we attend games at. Um, the Visa Center is, is a smaller gym uh, where you know I, I watched a couple of games over the weekend. If you're kind of coming out the backside of it, you look out onto just basically fields and fields of soccer. Um, when I was there, there wasn't anybody on those fields, but I do understand that's kind of where they're playing the games. So they're adjacent. I would say that the soccer players living in their bubble are entirely independent of the NBA players living in the NBA bubble. And as far as I know, there's no cross-contamination opportunities. Now, 
if we see, you know, I don't even know who any of the MLS soccer players are, but if we see them at the NBA pools on social media, <laughs> you know, we might have to, uh, you know, raise an alarm a la Lou Williams. But for now, they're basically adjacent. They're sort of like, uh, you know, long distance next door neighbors is probably the way to uh, to put it. And I don't, I'm not aware of any other sports coming down to Disney for their bubbles. I think it's basically MLS um, and NBA. So maybe I could get a free seat, Michael, you know, after some of these basketball games, I could just kind of stand on the concourse and from about, you know, 200 yards away, watch a uh, MLS game. Or I think as ESPN would prefer, I could always go back to my hotel room and watch it on television. Attaboy. I, I, real quick question about the MLS. I haven't had the time or the energy to investigate their testing process, but is everyone getting daily testing who's an MLS player and coach and I don't know what their media situation is, but is that is that are they basically just following like mimicking the NBA's guidelines and just applying it to their own little bubble league or like is there something different going on? Do you know? I don't want to speak on it too much. I don't know all the particulars. I do know that there were similar um, arrival protocols, although that the NBA's were a little bit stricter. And I think that people were pointing to the idea that, um, you know, the NBA caught the two uh, you know, positive tests during their quarantine period and isolated them before they could enter the bubble, whereas the MLS didn't catch everybody and they did have a little bit of an initial outbreak um, as evidence that the NBA's protocol was slightly stricter. Um, I do think the NBA is working with more money, and so I imagine that they have some enhanced protections uh, for their players uh, compared to MLS. I think they also have the benefit of, you know, fewer players per team, which may make it a little bit easier to, um, you know, kind of control things here. But uh, again, I'm, I'm certainly not a soccer expert and definitely not a soccer expert on the level of trying to educate, you know, Hugo in Portugal and where, you know, they're, they're big time soccer monsters over there. So um, I guess what we should do here is pivot to another question from the Open Floor Globe. That's Zach. He says, hey, Michael, don't be too quick to dismiss <laughs> the value of symbolic gestures like putting Black Lives Matter on the court. We are living in a world where the vice president refuses to even say Black Lives Matter and brave young men and women are going to jail to take down Confederate symbols. The NBA coaches and players don't write or vote on legislation um, to, you know, for police departments, but they can be symbolic and make anyone who wants to watch the NBA acknowledge that Black Lives Matter. So let's start with that question before we get to Zach's second question. Um, Michael, did have you th- rethought your position after this scolding from Zach? And now that you've seen the court, which does have a really prominent Black Lives Matter logo, all three of the courts do, um, and there will be those uh, Black Lives Matter jerseys that some players will will, will wear starting uh, with the, the resumption of the regular season on Thursday. Um, do you see where he's coming from? Do you still push back? And I guess if you're comparing it to say like le- what LeBron said about Breonna Taylor, on uh, on uh, whatever Wednesday night or Thursday night, um, you know which to you is more important. Which to you are, you know, which which of those do you think is the one that the NBA should kind of, uh, you know, prioritize as it goes forward for the next three months? Right. I mean, I think in the context of our discussion, what we were saying is, uh, would having Black Lives Matter on the court uh, be enough? compared to not playing at all and having games be a distraction, which that's a whole different conversation. I, I recall also saying that, yeah, it's if you're going to play the games, you know, having Black Lives Matter on the court, you would want it instead of not having it. So I am 100% for them putting it there. I think that it is a very good thing. And uh, I do think that, uh, you know, you could be cynical and call it performative, but I do think that 
promoting it in a positive way as they're doing is is ultimately beneficial. So, so yeah, I mean, I think me and Zach are kind of on the same page here. And I just, you know, the symbolism of saying Black Lives Matter, the uh, LeBron drawing awareness to uh, Breonna Taylor and the need for justice in her tragic death. Uh, I, I just... I, I think that all of that is good and all of it should keep going. And I hope that it is sustained uh, throughout this entire uh, uh, bubble experience because, you know, it's one thing to say these statements in, during post game media sessions after a meaningless exhibition. It's another thing for him to continuously speak on it or speak on a different matter, or even promote voting rights as his campaign, or as, as his initiative, uh, more than a vote is doing, you know, during a finals game or during a conference finals game, instead of talking about what happened on the court. That's when I want to see, really, that's when push comes to shove for me. So, yeah, I think at the end of the day, we're, me and Zach, we're, we're on the same page together. We're in agreement that uh, Black Lives Matter is, is, it's good to have that on the court and it's good to promote it as a philosophy. For sure. I mean, look, gestures are a step. They're not the final product, right? And I think that just about everyone or a lot of people are pro-gesture. But I think that what your main point was try to, uh, you know, try to take the next step, right? Try to keep going. Mm -hmm. Don't just settle for gestures. And I I think that, uh, you know, like you're saying, it's pretty easy to see you and Zach in alignment on there. Um, I was blown away by the level of response to LeBron's statements. I mean, millions of views on social media within hours um, of his comments about Breonna Taylor and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, There was a debate going back a month where we were saying, you know, this is a big platform. This could be a real opportunity. And everybody else was saying, look, there's a a major chance for distraction and everything else. If they use it right, um, if the players are able to kind of come with a coordinated uh, message, and right now it seems to be focused largely on Breonna Taylor, you're hearing a lot of players Tobias Harris, Paul George, LeBron. I mean, the list goes on of, of pretty prominent players, mm-hmm. you know, devoting a lot of time in their postgame comments to her case and, and trying to advocate for the police to be arrested um, for the shooting. I think um, the, the side of the argument that said this could be a net win for the players by going down there on the social justice issue, it starts to look more and more convincing. You know, every single day. I mean, I, it was a pretty powerful moment when LeBron uh, was speaking uh, so candidly the other night, and you kind of walked away from it thinking like, that's not the last time. This is this is going to be a persistent, consistent thing throughout this three months. And, you know, there's going to be a real showdown later this week too, Michael, because ultimately there's national anthems coming up, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's the possibility for players to kneel. We know how certain politicians feel about uh, professional athletes not kneeling. That could easily lead to sort of a political firestorm here uh, within a couple of days. Um, I think that I I would imagine the NBA and its players have sort of prepared and braced for that possibility. And so I do think that it would be smart for us to kind of put that on everybody's radar. As we get ready for games to come back, be ready for the possibility of, you know, political back and forth. Uh, Michael, here's another question from Zach, though. He says, on asterisk, which titles uh, do you put asterisk on right now? Um, so he wants to know, I guess, you know, looking back at the last five, 10 years of, of NBA finals, like when the Cavaliers were super injured or, you know, Kevin Durant can't play in the finals against the Raptors or, you know, other ones, maybe, uh, 
the the Heat with the quote unquote lucky shot from Ray Allen to beat the Spurs. Like I don't know. Do you have any? Uh, uh, that's just me kind of joking here. But do you have any that you actually do apply asterisk to, or are you just viewing this year as totally different for all the reasons we've already discussed before? Like, are you a regular asterisk wielder, Michael? The only finals that deserves an asterisk in my lifetime is. 2010 when Kendrick Perkins tore his ACL because obviously the Celtics would have won game seven if that didn't happen. Um, I am just kidding. I am not an asterisk person at all. I think that injuries are a part of the game and players making threes, (laughs) incredible threes is also a part of the game. So uh, no, unless any other finals have taken place that I am unaware of inside of a bubble, uh, where there is no home court advantage, where there is a pandemic going on that causes players to need to leave the bubble to be with ailing family members or who can contract it themselves and have to quarantine and self-isolate, then no, I, I think that this still in my eyes deserves an asterisk. And a lot of different things are going to be happening over the next couple months that will only fortify my view on that, I think. Uh, but as it stands now, yeah, this what we're about to see deserves an asterisk, and we've kind of gone over this a million times. I don't necessarily think it needs to be seen as a slight or a negative thing, uh, but it is just different from everything that has happened in the past. No, I, I hear you. Um, it is different. If anyone deserves an asterisk, I'd say it's this one. I guess for me, I differentiate between when do I apply an asterisk and when do I think the masses will apply an asterisk. And I do think that the masses will apply an asterisk almost certainly to this one for the reasons mm-hmm. you've described. Whether I do will depend on how things play out, right? If I really do feel like the most deserving team won um, and that the bubble held up, every most people were healthy, most people were here, I think that my natural inclination will be to tip my hat to the winners. I'm a big time believer in sportsmanship. You know, I was, uh, you know, I, I hated to lose when I was a player and I certainly try to hold myself to a higher standard as a writer, as an adult than I, you know, when I was a player, I'm not saying I was Isaiah Thomas ready to stalk off the court after every win, but I certainly wasn't going around shaking everybody's hand and super excited when I would lose games. Right. So I'm trying to, you know, pursue a little bit of self-improvement here. And I do think that's an important part of sports and the idea of uh, acknowledging the winners and, and not trying to detract from um, their accomplishments. And the same thing goes for the Raptors last year, despite all the crazy extenuating circumstances there. Same thing goes for the Cavaliers with their miracle comeback in 2016, which, you know, Kiki Vandaway, you know, finals MVP argument was pretty strong um, <laughs> that year. Uh, no, but like ultimately you want to kind of rally around the flag, you know, for lack of a better phrase, rally around the logo. And uh, in that in that situation, um, I am not one to, to put a lot of asterisks out there. Are you, Would you say that any titles have been given asterisk by the masses in recent years or maybe have looked at, you know, kind of twice. I mean, I think you mentioned previously maybe the lockout Spurs one. Mm-hmm. Um, has there been any others, or do you feel like most teams get validated? I mean, Zach mentions a couple here. Uh, you know, when the Cavs, LeBron's first year with the Cavs, when it was like him and Matthew Dellavedova's dehydrated remains versus the Golden State Warriors, and, you know, he was just superhuman. LeBron was superhuman in that series. Uh, and they ended up falling. And I think a lot of people at the time were still doubting like the Warriors as a valid champion, and that's what kind of spurred them on the following season to just go on this ridiculous run during the regular season where they win more games than any other team in NBA history. 
Um, that's one maybe, but like again, I I personally don't I don't buy any of that, and that it it kind of goes the other way where you could argue last year the Raptors winning how they did against just a, a Kevin Durantless. Uh, Clay Thompson eventually tore his ACL and was out in that series as well. And they were just hobbling. Uh, it was like a last gasp of that dynasty. Um, I Again, I don't really put any weight on the asterisk argument there either because it's basketball. Like these guys are physically fatigued clearly because they've been on. I mean, it's like a they were kind of a victim of their own greatness, right? Like they went on five straight finals runs and that's just that has a mental and physical toll on the body so it's it's difficult to win injuries happen uh so no i mean i think that those two kind of stand out as ones that casual fans would cite as needing asterisk but i personally don't buy into that argument yeah no i hear you i mean the only other one that comes to mind like regularly would be the rockets you know they only won because jordan was playing baseball Mm, um which it's not really an asterisk but it's more like it does kind of define those titles and, you know, going down to Houston's building and seeing how much they celebrate those titles is actually like kind of cool. I mean, I like those teams a lot. Akeem was incredible. They had their own little spot in history. They also real quick, like real, like they went back to back, like, come on, that's really hard to do. Oh, for sure. Um, well, that's what I'm saying. I just, when I, when I saw it in person in Houston, I was like, yeah, they do deserve to celebrate this as much as they are. And I was like, huh, mm-hmm. I've never seen anyone else celebrate these titles outside of Houston. Like I kind of felt bad for them. Uh, so I don't know. There's, there's no real way around it. There's always extenuating circumstances. I hope that we get to a place where the basketball is decided by the players, not by the virus. All right. Last question here, Michael, it's going to be a fun one. Okay. Chris writes, you know, Ben has dropped a quote unquote, smarten up Nas several times over the course of open floor. Jay-Z's The Takeover came onto my phone while I was doing hill sprints today, which made me go re-listen to Ether for the first time in years. Ben, what's your take on this feud after all these years? And should we assume that you were dropping that line means that you thought Jay-Z won the battle with Nas? So, Michael, I'm curious. I mean, first of all, where do you stand on one of uh, America's longest and most passionate debates um, which side of history were you on back then? And has your opinion evolved at all since? Real quick, going back to me feeling old about rap and it's You know evolution. who Nas is, Michael. Come no, on. I, no, no, no. I'm just saying, how many of our listeners who are like 25 and under do you think understand or, or remember this beef? Any? Well, well, I hope they do. And if not, we're going to need a last dance for Jay-Z. Okay, we're going to need to like <laughs> go behind the scenes of one of the glory eras of one of the greatest rappers of all time. Um, stop dodging the question, Michael. Okay. Jay-Z or Nas, who won? I, I'll, I'll start by saying I, I listen to Jay-Z's catalog way more than I do Nas's catalog. I think Ether is just way more vicious than Takeover. I mean, Takeover goes after Prodigy. It goes after 50 Cent, I think think i haven't listened to it in a long time it goes after quite a few rappers including nas um nas just had the bars with ether where he's just coming at jay and jay's response was super ugly i don't know if you remember that one and that oh really yeah fe- that was not <laughs> his finest hour <laughs> so um I, I like when i think about their feud i think that nas won but just as like 
like a winner of life, Jay-Z clearly takes the mantle there. Yeah, so this one's tricky. I was kind of trying to compare it to like basketball arguments, and I feel like I was always on Jay-Z's side during the initial uh, back and forth, mostly because I thought he had sort of like better advanced statistics, you know? It was sort of like he had had more career win shares, he had more album sales, he was kind of more famous. You know, like if you're just saying like which one of these guys is a better rapper, for me, it was like pretty clearly Jay-Z and more hits, you know, more albums, more guest spots, you know, uh, just like that kind of an argument, whereas Nas was more of the poet, the underdog, um, you know, a guy with, I mean, he had a large following, but he was more of like a niche following. He just didn't quite have the same level of broad appeal as Jay-Z. So for me, I looked at that beef through the prism of like, well, this isn't just about one song, right? It's like, you know, just when I'm doing my MVP arguments, you know, Michael, I'm like, well, it's not about judging the guy on his best day or his worst day. It's about the total body of work, you know, like all my slogans, the greatest ability is availability. It's sort of about consistency and total output and what's he bringing to the table and so the idea that you could kind of boil it down to like two songs to try to define these guys really bothered me and so that made me really stand for for jay-z throughout that back and forth um i also just really liked his wordplay uh, throughout the whole thing um even leading up to that but your point about ether is excellent first of all we should point out that ether has become like part of mainstream conversation now whenever you're trying to say like oh i ethered someone he ethered Mm -hmm. someone it's like just you know it's a real addition to the online lexicon as well everyone knows exactly what you mean when you use that word and we don't say that for super ugly we don't say that for takeover right i mean ether it has that special emotional connection nas really got through to people it was a wild song. I mean, I, to me, it's up there with Hit 'Em Up in terms of like the most memorable diss tracks basically ever. Um, so I think from that standpoint, you know, who had the best song through that, that back and forth, I would probably give it to Nas. And I don't think I would have admitted that, you know, 15 years ago. I think I would have just stubbornly said, oh, yeah, well, that's just because you like the beat. Why don't you listen to Takeover and see what Jay is really saying? Um, ultimately, though, it, it does hurt a little bit to realize that it's possible that I was on the wrong side of history for a really, really long time um, based on just the critical acclaim that Ether has received over the years. And it's pretty re-listenable. I mean, now that I'm not so personally and emotionally invested in defending Jay-Z's honor like I was when I was, you know, 19 or 20 years old, um, I can acknowledge it's a pretty good song. Yeah, I mean, I will say to defend Jay-Z that the phrase you know, putting someone on a summer jam screen comes from takeover and what he did to prodigy. So I feel like that's something that people still say, right? I I personally don't, but if I hear it, I know what the reference is. Um, I would like to be cool enough to say that. So I I aspire (laughs) to saying that. I'm trying to line up a, 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 an opportunity on this pod where I can say that to you. It has not presented itself yet. Uh, unfortunately, but well, I, maybe when Giannis jumps into the courtside <laughs> seats, wipes out my bottle of tea, wipes out my laptop, and gives me a concussion by hustling for a loose ball, you'll be able to tweet, "Hey, Giannis just put Ben on the summer jam screen," and you know, medics will be attending to me with gloves and masks. What do you think? That sounds like a great idea. And then also, like, just trying to make a basketball analogy because this is a basketball podcast. Jay Z had Kanye make the beat and he had Kanye's production on blueprint, which is the album where takeover is on. 
And like Kanye's production on that album is just like flawless and incredible. And obviously Kanye the man is not aging very well. But that's like having Scottie Pippen on the final, like on your run Ooh. to the finals. And like Nas never, I mean, there's like a c- couple tracks that Kanye has collaborated with Nas on. But like the relationship that Jay had with Kanye, where he fi- he fi- basically finds him, discovers him, promotes him, uh, utilizes all of his abilities on his albums. Um, yeah, I just think that Jay was smart enough to have someone like that in his stable. And so that really hurts like it I don't know if it hurts him or it hurts Nas, but either way, it's why I view Jay a little bit like I give him the the, the leg up a little bit on Nas generally. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, is like there's this prism of Jay-Z saying, you know, you made it a hot line, I made it a hot song, mm-hmm. that you could really expand to their entire careers, you know, and yes. impact on society. It's like, you know, uh, Nas, you made it a hot rap career, but I made it a hot empire, you know? I'm a billionaire. And, <laughs> right. And, and I do think that, like, it's really hard for me to divorce all of Jay-Z's overall life success and, you know, like, just... Uh, impact on society and the you know the relationship with beyonce even and you know how they're now marketing their child and going forward as you know one of america's first families it seems like where we don't really have that from nas it's it's sort of like hennessy commercials at this point um i just Mm. there's a little bit of a fork in the road between those two in terms of how their careers took off since this moment so i guess for the nas stands out there you will always have ether for the Jay-Z stands, I think that, uh, you know, you're going to be remembered a little bit more kindly by overall rap history just through sheer willpower and staying power and consistency and uh, star power. So I guess that's where I come down. Hopefully that answers his question. And probably not. But uh, certainly this is why we try to stick to basketball, Michael. No, we could go on and literally have an, an entire episode about this. Like, I want to argue with you about Illmatic and Reasonable Doubt. Like, we could Ooh. really, we could do this for, for hours, but unfortunately, there's basketball to watch. Okay, one sentence take, Illmatic or Reasonable Doubt? Illmatic's better, like, without a doubt. Ooh, see, Illmatic's tighter. It's definitely tighter. It's one of the tightest albums of all time in terms of just, like, 10, 10 awesome songs, no skips, cohesive uh, I love Reasonable Doubt, though, man. Uh, Reasonable Doubt is a I really do too. good album. Yeah, it is. De Evils. <laughs> De Evils, Michael. They're watching. All right. On that note, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, thanks for hanging with us through all the twists and turns of this show and for the hiatus. The next show we do, Michael, will be Friday, recapping opening night with the Pelicans, the Jazz, the Lakers, and the Clippers. I'm so excited to tip off. It's going to be amazing. So, guys, check your feeds probably Friday afternoon. We're going to give uh, as quick of a reaction as we possibly can to those games. Guys, also, please uh, be aware you've probably seen it already in your open floor feeds. Sports Illustrated is putting out a three-part series kind of inside the basketball bubble. Um, it's called Potting the Bubble. And it is hosted uh, by a, you know, an SI uh, podcast host, Louise, who did a great job putting this thing together. He interviewed me, Chris Mannix, a few other people um, who are either in the bubble or knowledgeable about the bubble, about the NBA's grand plan here. Um, it is three parts, like I mentioned. It's going to show up automatically in your open floor feed, but you can also subscribe to it. Uh, just look for Sports Illustrated's Coronavirus Podcast. Um, all right, Michael, they can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben Doc Oliver. 
on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Guys, be sure to sign up for my Washington Post newsletter by going to my Twitter page, find my bio. There's a link right there. It's free. It comes out every single Monday. This week's uh, edition is on Lou Williams. And uh, also, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. If you are excited about basketball coming back, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word to other basketball fans. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.